Good morning. Welcome. My name's Timothy. I'm going to be serving you today. What can I get for you? I've practiced that many times over the years. In fact, this is my order-taking notebook from the Olive Garden. Throughout my college years, throughout my seminary years, and even after I'd graduated from seminary, I've logged over a decade of waiting tables as a young man. And the Lord returned me to that service even after I'd graduated from seminary and spent some time as a youth pastor so that down in Florida, before I moved here, I was supporting my wife and my new baby when she was born by waiting tables. In waiting tables, you learn how to be there for other people. You learn how to show up, not in order to be able to sit down and enjoy a relaxing meal for yourself, but in order to make sure that other people are able to sit down and enjoy a relaxing meal. In that way, it's, it's kind of like the mother's service, who's prepared the meal and serving everyone and is the last one to eat. And that's the way it was for me for over a decade. And God gave me those lessons in service and humility because he knew that I would need them. He knew that I would need to recognize that the work of the Christian ministry, whether you are the preacher or whether you are in the pews at this moment, is a work of service. It's a work of not getting your own needs met, but of meeting the needs of others. And so that's going to be the big idea in our message today as you open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. Please join me in Mark chapter 10 as we listen to the Lord Jesus Christ teaching on the subject of suffering service. Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45 this morning. Suffering service. Now, we're in this section, starting in the middle of chapter 8 and ending here at the end of chapter 10, on the subject of discipleship, as Jesus Christ has announced to his followers that he is traveling to Jerusalem, where he is going to be betrayed, where he is going to be condemned to die, where he is going to rise again. And as we look into this section, we're finding that the disciples are very slow to learn this lesson and that they've been trying to exalt themselves and put themselves in the best position for the coming glory. And they're not thinking about the upcoming suffering, they're only thinking about the coming glory. And so, you recall, they were arguing about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And of course, we know, and they would have known, who is the greatest in the kingdom of God, and that is the Son of God himself. The Messiah of Israel is going to be King of kings and Lord of lords, exalted in glory. But what they didn't understand about the Messiah, what they didn't understand about the Son of God, is that he is also the suffering servant. And that's what Jesus has been trying to drill into their minds in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And that's what is going to be emphasized finally and powerfully in our text today, that Jesus Christ is the suffering servant and that we, as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, are called to a life of suffering service. Suffering service is what being a Christian is all about in this time, in this age that we live in. So let's go ahead and look at the outline for this morning. You see that we're going to take it in two parts. We're going to see Jesus' example that he is the ultimate example of suffering and service. We'll see that in verses 32 to 34, and then the key verse for this whole section, and perhaps the key verse for the whole gospel, verse 45. Very important. And then we'll see Jesus elaborate on how he sets the example and that we are following him in suffering and service in verses 35 to 44. A very straightforward passage. There's nothing difficult. There's no issues where we have to give multiple views and debate and discuss what it means. It's clear what it means. It's just hard to do. And may we have strength from God to be conformed to the example of Jesus Christ in our service to one another and our suffering in the world. Let me read for you verses 32 to 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Here, for the third time, Jesus predicts his suffering, his passion. He began in chapter 8, verse 31, for the first time he revealed to his disciples that he was going to die in Jerusalem. And then again, in chapter 9, verses 30 to 32, he repeated it. Now here for the third time, Mark records the prediction of Jesus Christ of his impending death, but not just his death, all three warnings also end on the high note of his bodily resurrection. Mark is not the only one who records this three times, but also Matthew and Luke. All three synoptic gospels have three records, a repetition by Christ, predicting his death and resurrection for emphasis. This is here for emphasis for us as the readers, but also for the disciples who were slow to get it, as we see. And we'll see that again today. Each time that Jesus told the disciples about his coming suffering, they ignored what he said, they only thought about the upcoming glory, and they were jockeying for position in the upcoming kingdom of God. They were not learning what they were supposed to learn, and we are so glad that they eventually do. What would the early church have looked like? What would the apostolic church have looked like if the attitudes of Peter, James, and John, and the other disciples on this issue had not been changed? If Peter, James, and John were still the selfishly ambitious men that they were before the coming of the Spirit of Christ, before the day of Pentecost, without having been humbled by the experience of seeing Jesus Christ crucified, and Peter denying Christ three times and being restored by God's grace, what would the church have been without the learning of this lesson? Notice that Jesus Christ then, at the end of this section, let's jump ahead to verse 45, that he gives the prediction not only of how he is going to die and where he is going to die and who is going to put him to death, but he tells us the reason, the divine reason, God's purpose in his death and resurrection. And here's the key verse for the whole section, perhaps the whole gospel. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now before I expand more on that verse, I want to also focus in on the amazement and the fear that existed among the disciples as they walked on the road towards Jerusalem. You see that back in verse 32. Now the question is, as Jesus is walking on ahead of them, why were they amazed and why were they afraid? It seems like Jesus is part of a larger group here that's going up to Jerusalem. The Psalms of Ascent were written in the Old Testament for the Jewish people as they made their pilgrimage from wherever they lived around the lands of Judea and also in the northern part of Israel. As they would ascend to Jerusalem, we might think of it as coming down to Jerusalem since we look at the map from north to south, but they weren't speaking in terms of north and south, they were speaking in terms of elevation. And from Galilee, you ascend quite a lot, thousands of feet from the depths of the river valley up to the heights of Jerusalem as it sat on an elevated peak. Now, as they ascended, they would sing praises to God. They would look forward to the holiday, the holy day, the celebration of Passover that was going to occur in a short amount of time. And so Jesus is going up to Jerusalem with all of the devout people of Israel in order to participate in the festival, the feast of the Passover that God had ordained for Israel. And as Jesus and his disciples are going up, among those who are following along with him is amazement and fear. Why? Well, there is a sense of foreboding among the followers of Jesus. They know, they sense how much opposition there is in Jerusalem to Jesus Christ. They know that 
the disagreements between Jesus and the scribes and religious leaders has grown to such an extent that Jesus' life is in danger. And yet, he's not going up secretly to the feast. He's going up publicly, and he's going up with great courage. He's not afraid. And that is what is amazing them. They're afraid. They're wondering what's going to happen. And they also have been told by Jesus that when he gets there, he's going to be betrayed and he's going to be killed. And so all of this is starting to weigh on their minds. And yet Jesus is a man apart. He has set his face like flint to go towards Jerusalem and he's walking ahead of them. You see a certain fearlessness, a certain picture of courage that is here in Christ and yet his disciples are not yet of the same spirit. They are amazed and afraid in the presence of one who is very different, who thinks very differently, who sees very differently from the way that they see and the way that they think. Jesus is able to walk ahead of them courageously to what he knows is going to be his crucifixion because of verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This language of the Son of Man giving his life as a ransom, we think that most likely what is in the mind of Christ at this time is Isaiah chapter 53, which we'll get to in a moment. But I wanted to bring out this idea of ransom a little bit as well this morning. And when it comes to Jesus Christ's purpose for his death, he paid a price. That's what the word ransom conveys. Ransom was used in the Old Testament to refer to the liberation of a slave or the paying of someone's financial debts or buying a prisoner of war out of captivity. But it was also used religiously in the Old Testament of God's redemption, the buying back of Israel from her sins and the consequences of her sins. And so the idea of a ransom being paid is very similar to the idea of sacrifice. That in both cases, a substitute is being given in order to free one. And here, the ransom idea is really powerfully stated in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, where decades after the crucifixion of Christ, Peter, having learned the lessons, speaks to the church about the purpose of Christ's death and says, you know that you were not ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Think about how Christ gave himself as the payment for your sins. The price of your liberty from your guilt is paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's at the heart of the gospel message, and we have it here most clearly, most powerfully in the gospel of Mark in verse 45. And as I said, this idea of paying a ransom, this is embedded in the Old Testament prophecies concerning Christ in Isaiah 53. This would be the key passage that would have been in Mark's mind, in Peter's mind, in the disciples' mind, that once they understood that Christ was going to die, once they understood what he said about him giving his life as a ransom, they would have gone to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10 in their minds, where it says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. It wasn't man's will, it was God's will. Jesus Christ is going to Jerusalem, not resigned to give himself over to what human beings and human society has determined for him, but he's going to give himself into what God has determined, what God has planned for his son Jesus Christ. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He put him to grief. And notice what it says next. When his soul makes an offering for guilt... That language is not the exact same language what we have here in verse 45, but it is very similar, and they appear to be linked in the minds of Jesus and those who learned from him. Now, if you're looking for a clear prediction in the Old Testament of the resurrection of the Messiah of Israel, this is probably as clear as you're going to get. Because you see that the Lord crushes this suffering servant, as he is called, and that he makes himself an offering for guilt. Now, how many of the Old Testament offerings for guilt walked away 
after the offering. It's zero. Because the offering means death. Every animal that was offered on the sacrifice was killed. It was bled, it was butchered, it was burned. No animal survived that process. And so if this suffering servant is making his soul an offering for guilt, and yet in the very next phrase it says, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, well, that tells you something about the resurrection, does it not? Well, with the example of Jesus Christ before us, and I encourage you to go back and read Isaiah 53. It's a, a powerful passage about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the suffering servant. And I'm so glad that we've studied through Isaiah's prophecies together as a church so that you have some knowledge from that study about this most important section of prophetic scripture. But we're going to move on then to the main point in all of this. What the gospel writer Mark has been driving home ever since the announcement that Jesus Christ was going to die back in chapter 8 with how we need to get our minds in line with the suffering servant and become like him in his suffering and in his service. So having looked at Jesus' example, let's transition and look at our following in his footsteps. And that begins in verses 35 to 40 with the focus on suffering. Verses 35 to 40, suffering. It begins with James and John, the sons of Zebedee, coming up to Jesus and saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. At this point, they're probably thinking, oh boy, we got it. But verse 40, But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. This is a section on suffering together with Jesus. And it begins with a very childish question on behalf of James and John. Have your children ever come to you when they were young and said, Dad, Mom, I got something to ask, but you have to promise me that you won't say no. Can't do that. I can't promise not to say no until I know what it is that you want. And so James and John are acting like little children here, asking Jesus to promise not to say no. And of course, he doesn't do that. He has a, a wise response as the mature one in the group. What do you want me to do for you? Let's start there. Now, at least their request does indicate that they're about to ask for something big. And it also indicates that they're asking for something that they kind of are not sure whether they should ask for, whether or not it's exactly what Jesus is thinking, what he wants to give them. And so that's what your children are also doing when they come to you and ask you, please don't say no. They're kind of betraying that they suspect that you might say no, and they're just trying to buffer that a little bit. So they know that they're asking something big, they know that they're asking something that's a little out of place, and yet they've still got the gumption to ask for it. You've got to admire their gumption. Now, let's give James and John a little bit of grace here, and let's point out that Jesus had taught the disciples that if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. So James and John, hey, two of us agreeing on earth about something that we want to ask, we're just doing what Jesus told us to do, right? You don't have because you don't ask. So we're going to be bold and ask for what we want. They might have been thinking along those lines. And also, to show them some grace and favor, I'd like to remind you what Jesus said in Matthew 19, verse 28, which in Matthew's gospel is just prior to what we have here in Mark chapter 10. 
that Jesus had told his disciples that in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So James and John, they heard what Jesus said. They liked what Jesus said. We're going to be sitting on twelve thrones, and so maybe we should get our request in first that our thrones are the ones to the right and the left of Jesus. I mean, somebody's got to be on the right. Somebody's got to be on the left. Peter, you know, he's definitely in the running. But maybe if we get dibs first, you know, we get in there and ask first before Peter. Sorry, first come, first serve. Jesus has a perfect response to their selfish and foolish question. He doesn't rebuke them severely. He just tells them, you don't know what you're asking. He tells them that they are ignorant. And by my count, there's four things that they are ignorant of that cause them to make this request. Number one, they are ignorant of Christ's sufferings. That's what Jesus focuses on first there when he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized. They focused in on the glory of Christ. They have completely glanced over in their hearts and minds the coming suffering of Christ. They're not understanding it, probably because they don't want to understand it, and they just don't want to think about it. So they have not thought about the sufferings of Christ. That's one thing that they are ignorant of. Now, let's talk about the terminology here that Jesus uses to refer to his sufferings. Number one... He says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? What does that mean? What is the cup that Jesus Christ is going to drink? Well, this also comes from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17, the scripture says, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of wrath staggering. Here, the Old Testament metaphor of drinking a cup is a a cup of wrath. You can imagine that perhaps in some times and in some cultures that the punishment for some crime would be to drink poison. You have the cup in your hand, you've been sentenced, and now you have to drain to the dregs the poison that is in the cup that is, is your sentence. And this is an internalizing of the punishment, Uh, that normally you think of punishment as being external, the flogging, the crucifixion, the beheading, it's something that is happening to the outside of your body, but when you drink in the poison, it's something that's going to kill you from the inside, and that's a, a pretty powerful picture of punishment, and would be a very terrifying sentence to be, have executed upon you, to hold in your hand and drink your own death. Well, this is the metaphor in Isaiah 51:17. It's also in verses 22 and 23, where God promises to take the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, out of Jerusalem, out of Israel's hands, and to put it into the hands of the tormentors. So whether it was God's people, whether it was the nations, God made the peoples drink their own judgment, their own death, with this internalized suffering. But the baptism presents it in another light, another picture. Now, we normally think of baptism as a good thing, and yet in this context, and also in Luke chapter 12, verse 50, baptism is a bad thing. These are the only two places in Scripture that I think really use baptism in this way, this this bad sense of the word, where they're both words from the Lord Jesus Christ about his upcoming suffering. In Luke 12, 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Now, this shows you that words have a variety of uses in different contexts, and you can't always drive the meaning of one context into another context, and that's why when you look up words in a dictionary, it will sometimes give four or five different meanings of the word, and you're not supposed to say that every one of those meanings is every time the word is used and try to read them all into every use, but no, you try to figure out from the context which meaning is being used. And so if you think about the concept of baptism, It was not only used as an initiatory rite, a cleansing type of metaphor, but it's also used of someone who's being plunged, 
Baptism is, is a submersion, an immersion, plunged into suffering or plunged into a desperate situation where the waters are kind of overwhelming you and surrounding you. And we still use that metaphor and that picture of being overwhelmed by sorrows or being plunged into suffering. And that's the idea of baptism here. You're being immersed into a terrible situation that is like drowning. So the drinking of the cup, the baptism, both of these are metaphors of Jesus Christ's coming suffering. And he asks if these two bold disciples, James and John, are able to drink his cup and be baptized with his baptism. And they, who are ignorant of the extent of Christ's sufferings, are also ignorant of their own inability to suffer for Christ. They think, like Peter thought, that I would be willing to die for you. James and John, they honestly thought that we want to be right and left hand in Jesus' kingdom. And so no matter what it takes, no matter what we have to suffer, we are able, we are willing, because we want it more than anything. We believe in you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. We want to be there at your right hand and left hand. We can do whatever God asks us to do. They are ignorant of their own inability, just as Peter was ignorant. And Peter had to learn through his denial of Christ that he was not able to suffer for the one that he believed in. He was not able to love the one that he professed to love so powerfully. They're ignorant of Christ's sufferings. They're ignorant of their own inability. They're also ignorant of how greatness is attained. They think that the positions on the right and left hand can be attained by desire. If we just want it enough, if we just do enough, if we just ask, if we just work, if we just suffer, that's how we can get to these positions of glory. And Jesus reveals to them that that is not how greatness in God's kingdom is attained. It's not attained by your works. It's attained by God's grace. Just as salvation is not by works, so our rewards in heaven are not by works, but are by grace. You say, well, Timothy, aren't there rewards for our work in Christ? And isn't that based upon our work in Christ? Well, yes, that's true. But what about Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16? We are invited to labor in God's field. And for those who work their whole lives in God's field, they might end up getting the same reward in heaven as the person who comes to Christ at the last hour on his deathbed and, and never even gave any of his money to church and never even served in Sunday school and never sang in the choir and never taught a Bible lesson and never visited the sick and never served as a deacon. God could give them the same reward as the person who worked for 90 years in his church because it's all grace. And we don't earn our reward in heaven by the works that we do. God graciously gives us a reward in heaven for the works that we do, but he can give whatever he wants to whomever he wants because none of us deserve it, and it's all his to give, and he can do whatever he wants with what belongs to him. So if you get to heaven and you think, well, I've got a great reward waiting for me, and you get disappointed when someone else gets a greater reward for having done less work, well, you haven't learned about grace. You haven't learned about grace. They didn't know about grace. They were ignorant of suffering. They were ignorant of grace. They were ignorant about their own inability. And finally, they were even ignorant of Jesus' own authority. They thought that Jesus, being the King, being the Lord, being the Messiah, that he would have the authority to give this position of honor to sit at his right hand and to sit at his left to whomever he wanted. And that's not true. Jesus does not have authority in himself to give this position out. But notice what he says there in verse 40. To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus, as the Son of God, as the King of Israel, is not a self-authoritating person. He does not have authority to act however he wants. 
but he always does the will of the Father. And that's why he is God's choice for King of kings and Lord of lords. Because he is not a self-willed man. He does not act based upon his own desires, but he always does what is pleasing to the Father and he always acts in accordance with God's will. And God has ordained who will be at the right hand and who is at the left. And Jesus submits himself to the Father in that choice. Isn't that fascinating? This is not only true for the right and the left hand in the kingdom, but it's true for each one of us. I don't think anyone here this morning is going to be the right hand or the left hand in the kingdom. Whatever place God has assigned for you in the kingdom, it's not based upon your choice. It's based upon God's predestination, God's providence. Notice what it says there in Matthew 25, verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation and from the world. So your entrance into the kingdom is based upon God's choice before the foundation of the world. And before the foundation of the world, God chose each person's place in that kingdom. Fascinating. Then we come to verses 42 to 45 on service. So, we've seen Jesus' example. He is the suffering servant above all other suffering servants, and that is why he is going to be glorified and exalted above every other person. Then we see that we must find our place in following him, not in seeking honor, but in seeking suffering and service. We looked at the suffering there in verses 35 through 40. James will be beheaded in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. The last that we hear from John in the New Testament is that he is exiled on the island of Patmos as he's writing the book of Revelation and that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted and as the verse says in Romans 8:17, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So expect to suffer with Christ in this age and to be glorified with him in the age to come. That is the plan. But that's not all. We've talked about suffering, now it's time to talk about service. And we see that focused on in verses 41 through 44. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. As we come to the subject of service, notice that the other ten are indignant at James and John. Now, this is the same word for indignant that we had used of Jesus when the disciples were forbidding the children from coming to receive the blessing. But Jesus was indignant for the right reasons. Here the disciples are indignant for the wrong reasons. How do we know that? Well, it's because he calls all the disciples to him and starts to teach them the lesson on service. So don't get the idea that the other ten were really humble servants and that they were indignant because James and John weren't learning the lesson that Jesus had been teaching them about suffering service. No, that's not why they're upset. They're upset because James and John tried to exclude them from the positions of right and left. They tried to jump ahead in line. And they're all trying to move ahead in line and they don't appreciate someone getting cuts. So they're indignant, not because of righteous reasons, but because of selfish and childish reasoning once again. And so Jesus has to give all 12 of them this final lesson in these chapters on service. That the way to be great in God's kingdom is not by social climbing. You don't social climb in the church. You don't come to church and start to figure out, well, who do I be friends with so that I can be thought of as a leading person in the church? Or who can I be friends with so that I can gain more respect among this group of people? You know, everything you've learned by going to school and being in the workforce out in the world, you throw that away when you get to church. You're not here to make friends and influence people in the way that you do in the world. No social climbing going on in the church. It's totally reversed. If you want to be great in this group, Instead of coming to church thinking, 
how can I climb? You come to church and you think, how can I descend? Instead of social climbing, here we are social descending. We're going down to the lowest level. We're trying to make ourselves servants and slaves. Those are the words that Jesus uses here to describe greatness among the church. You are servants, that's the word for deacon, and you are slaves, the word doulos. This is a powerful lesson. This is what differentiates the church from every other group of people in the world. Look at what I have here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5. Paul learned this. He spent his whole life social climbing in Judaism, becoming the Pharisee of the Pharisees, doing everything so that people would look to him as the man, the leader. And as he tried to climb to the very top of Judaism, and he was getting there, God totally changed his direction. And instead of social climbing, he became the slave of others for Jesus' sake. And that's what he writes to the Corinthians. He says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. That's the word doulos, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. You come to church like a waiter goes to his job. You are not here to be served. You are here to serve. You don't come to church so you can sit in the pew and then go home afterwards and say, were my needs met? You come to church to look around and see where are some needs that I can meet. Totally different mindset. You don't go home from waiting tables satisfied, having eaten, having enjoyed yourself. You go home exhausted. You go home tired. You go home hungry. And that's the way it should be here. You're here to make sure everyone else has a good time. And it doesn't matter whether or not you have a good time. Jesus Christ set this example. He himself took the form of a slave, the form of a servant. Philippians 2.7 Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, a slave, being born in the likeness of men. Now, this idea of servant leadership is such an important, such a key idea, and yet, let me warn you against its misuse. There are Christians in the 20th century who are opposed to any authority structure because we live in a, an anti-authority culture, and they use the idea of suffering service to try to negate what the Bible does say about structure and order within the church. So I'd like you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter learned this lesson. He learned it the hard way through the suffering and bitterness of his own denial of Christ. He learned it by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. He was a transformed and changed man. And we see a totally different Peter in 1 Peter in his letters than what we see in the Gospels. And here in 1 Peter chapter 5, we see that Jesus Christ's lesson to the disciples was taken to heart and that they passed this on to the others who would be the authority in Christ's church. So it says this, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Notice that word, sufferings. As well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight. So there is an authority structure. There are shepherds. It's not just that, well, you know, I defer to you and you defer to me and we submit to each other with a mutual submission type of idea. Now, the Bible teaches that there is authority, there is submission, but those who are in authority, they use their authority differently than the way that the people in the world use their authority. Notice what it says in verse 2. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And then here, verse 3, when he says, not domineering over those in your charge, Peter is quoting what Jesus had taught. Jesus said, those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, lord it over them. It's the same word. Lord it over, domineering, that type of leadership that uses its authority in order to establish its own will and its own desires, that has no place in the church, and it has no place in our families. 
Men who are domineering over their wives do not know what it means to follow Christ. But that doesn't mean that the husband is not head of the wife. And it doesn't mean that the elders are not in charge of the church. It doesn't mean you don't have to submit to the elders of the church. It doesn't mean you don't have to submit to your husband. You do. But those who are in charge will be judged by Christ as to whether or not they have ruled harshly, selfishly, over those who are under their charge. Jesus Christ submitted to Pilate. Pilate misused his authority. All God's plan, all God's will. Jesus Christ will judge Pilate. That's how it works. When the chief shepherd appears, that's when the elders, the shepherds, will be judged. And those who have shepherded according to Christ's command will receive the unfading crown of glory. Those who have been domineering, they will be condemned by Christ. So that's why he says, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So you still have to subject yourself to the rulers. You still have to subject yourself to the authorities. The authorities will answer for how they have conducted themselves before Christ. So don't get the idea of mutual submission means there's no authority in the family, there's no authority, everyone's their own authority and we're all just underneath Christ. No, there is an authority structure in society as much as the world tries to tear down the family and destroy the authority structure. It's not God's will. All right, so with that caveat in mind, let's return to the importance of the proper use of authority in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 10. This is a great example for us. If you want an example of servant leadership exercising authority in a Christ-like manner, read 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians is the book of pastoral ministry, the heart of service. Men, if you're having a hard time being a leader in your household, read 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians will show you how to do it. Follow Paul's example as he follows Christ's example. And there in 2 Corinthians 13.10, it says, For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. So here what the scripture reveals to us is that there is a time where those who are in authority have to be severe in the use of their authority. But we don't want to. What we prefer is to use authority in a gentle way because we're not trying to tear people down. We're trying to build them up. That our goal is always building up when we exercise authority. And that's part of the service. That the servant leader is looking to build you up. Sometimes that means exercising authority in order to build you up. But more often than not, it doesn't involve exercising authority it involves just being an example. That's why Peter says, show yourself to be an example to the flock. I remember this when I was working at Hy-Vee. Lots of lessons learned from work this morning. I'd go to work at Hy-Vee and I'd see my managers working fast, working hard, stocking the shelves when we were in the same aisle, working the same pallet together. And so they weren't telling me, Timothy, work faster, work harder. They were showing me, this is how you work fast, this is where you work hard. And when they told me to do something, they didn't say, I'm an boss around here and you've got to do what I say and you go up there and you check out those people at the register. They'd say, Timothy, would you please go check out people at register number eight? They didn't have to use their authority. All they had to do was ask nicely and I, who recognize their authority, I'm going to do what they say. And so that's the way it is in the church. You don't have to order people around. You ask people to do things nicely and people are happy to do things nicely. You don't have to order people to work harder. You just work harder and set the example and people will follow in that example. That's good leadership. That's what we see from the Apostle Paul. That's what we see from the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn with me to John chapter 13. John 13 in your Bibles. The ultimate example of what Jesus is teaching here is found in John chapter 13. I'm so thankful for the Gospel of John the gospel that fills in so many of the things that were left out of the other gospels and yet still had to be very selective because there's no end to the wonderful things that could have been written about the Lord Jesus Christ. But thankfully we have John 13 where we see 
that when Jesus' hour had come, the hour to depart from the world, during the supper, Jesus, he rises from supper in verse 4, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. I wonder how far afterward it was before Peter understood. Maybe after his resurrection, maybe after the day of Pentecost, Peter finally got it. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. There is still authority. Jesus is Lord. He is the Master. But He, as Lord and Master, does not seek to ascend. He seeks to descend. He didn't come to be served, but to serve. He left his father's throne in order to take the form of a slave in order to serve you by dying as a sacrifice for your sins. And if Christ has done that for you, then you, no matter what your position, no matter what your authority, no matter what honor you have among men, you should not consider that, not protect that, but instead humble yourself and race to the bottom, as we've said, descend to go down and serve like a slave. Be the waiter instead of the one who is being waited upon. Be the slave instead of the one who is receiving the slave's service. So look around this morning. Here's a whole group of people for you to serve. Here's a whole group of people for you to say, how can I meet their needs? And start doing it. And you will be great in God's eyes. You will be great in God's kingdom. That's the secret. That's the key. You come to church to serve, not to be served. I want to end in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8 through 16. So turn from the Gospel of John back to Paul's letters. All of the Corinthian correspondences, both 1 and 2 Corinthians, contain great principles on spiritual leadership although really it's more of spiritual service and slavery, if you want to be thinking more biblically. We want to join Jesus as our leader in suffering service, which means we will suffer in the world as we serve the saints. We will suffer in the world as we serve the saints. Look at Paul's example once again in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 8-16. through 16. Already you have all that you want, Already you have become rich. Without us you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. 
That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. You can avoid suffering in the world if you just learn how to find the right balance between what the Bible says and what the world believes. And you can buy yourself some respect temporarily. You can buy yourself some respite from being the target of Satan's attacks by compromising a little bit with the world. He will buy you that way. You don't have to be the dregs of the world. You don't have to be despised by the world. You can be the Christian that, yeah, he's a little bit different than us, but we'll focus our attacks on those Christians who are really a problem. Or you can follow the Lord Jesus Christ in integrity and honesty, letting Jesus Christ's truth be at the forefront of all that you say and do, and and you can suffer with Christ. And if you suffer with Christ, you will be glorified with him. So much of the theological compromise that is happening in the church and always happens in the church is because of a desire not to suffer. Cowards, weaklings, people who are afraid of the intimidation and the persecution that the world puts on those who believe what the Bible says. You can be that way. The Corinthians, they were trying to find that happy place. Or you can suffer with Christ. And as you suffer with Christ, your goal is to serve one another. Paul was serving the Corinthians, even in rebuking them, telling them these things. He didn't mean to make them ashamed. He meant them to wake up and to recognize they needed to follow Paul's example and become the scum of the earth for Christ's sake. The scum of the earth in the world, servants among one another. Is that what you signed up for? Is that what you're here for? I hope so. Because if so, you are blessed and you are a true follower of Christ.